The topics of race, racial reconciliation, and social justice often elicit strong emotions, which is one of the reasons why many pastors and churches tend to stay silent on these issues. However, on this special Martin Luther King Jr. Day, David Platt argues that these are not topics the church can ignore. These issues are gospel issues, and all the more urgent today, 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt, delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered and gospel-equipping resources at our website, Radical.net. Our worship of God is integrally connected to the way we treat our neighbor, including those who do not look like us. Based on Amos chapter 5, David's sermon today exhorts us to consider our role in perpetuating racism, often without realizing it. Every follower of Christ should pray and work for justice in the culture around us. Here's David Platt with a new sermon titled, Praying and Working for Justice, Racialization from Amos chapter 5. Well, if you have the word of this God, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me in the Bible to Amos chapter 5. We are starting this year with 40 days of concentrated prayer. And as I've prayed about where to go in the word during these days, I believe God has led us to two different sensitive topics that we need to address as the church in our culture with God's word. So we know that this weekend we celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday, January 15th, 1929. And the next weekend, many of you know that churches traditionally celebrate sanctity of life. So as we pray together during these 40 days, it seems most appropriate for us to pray for God's justice and mercy in a culture that is marked by both racialization and abortion. Now there are obvious challenges that come with both of these topics. They are politically charged. They evoke a range of thoughts, emotions, opinions. There's a reason why pastors are hesitant to preach on these topics because of the variety of responses they inevitably elicit. And I just, I just want to be clear this week and next that my goal as pastor is not to promote my or anyone else's opinion or political position. You don't want to hear from me. I, I don't want to hear from me. We want to hear from God. Like my prayer for McLean Bible Church is that we would indeed be united together around the Bible, just as the name of our church says. So my, my hope today and then next Sunday is to help us see how the Bible addresses these issues in our culture. And as we dive into them, I'd like to ask for just an extra measure of grace from you. So I, I know that amidst 12,000 or so people with more than 12,000 opinions, uh, any, any word I say can go in 12,000 different directions. On, on this topic today, I feel like there are landmines everywhere. There's opportunity to offend white people, black people, people of a variety of ethnicities. Some people are already offended that I'm even differentiating between different colors of people, like I've already offended you. So uh, 
Then on top of all that, our sensitivity obviously heightened after news the last couple of days here in Washington. When I, when I was preparing the sermon, I sent a draft to different pastors and members in our church and outside our church just to get counsel feedback, and I received so much helpful feedback. The only problem was much of it was contradictory. Like some guys were, yeah, leave this, take this out. Others saying, no, leave that, take this out. It's like, ah, oh. so I'm just asking for grace. I, I, I know that it's really easy. I know it's easy for my words to be taken out of context, particularly since we're going to go a bit longer than usual in the Word today. And so I know it's possible for you to tune out at one point and back in a few minutes later. But if you miss what's in the middle, you might misunderstand the whole point. So, and I want to ask for grace because if there's one conclusion I've come to on this topic, it's that I have so much to learn the process of preparing this sermon, God has opened my eyes to blind spots in my life and my leadership or lack thereof in the church on this issue. I'll, I'll share next week about how for years I viewed abortion as a political issue and I didn't speak about it in the church, which was wrong. Abortion is a biblical issue. And so is racism and racialization. And this week, just to be honest, I've been brought to tears because God has opened my eyes to sinfulness I hadn't seen in myself, to things I'll say today that I might have been offended by before, yet now I'm wondering why in the world I haven't seen and said these things. So all this to say, I don't presume to come to this topic with everything figured out. I have so much to learn, and I want to learn from God's Word together in the context of this church. So I'm just asking for extra grace from God and from, from you today. In fact, let me, let me pray toward that end for, for me and for, for us. Uh, let's pray. Oh God, we need you. We, we need to hear from you in our world right now. We, as your people in a sinful world, we have blind spots that we can't see on our own. We need your word and your spirit to help us see. As I think about my Bible reading yesterday, Lord, Matthew, Matthew 13, where you described a people whose hearts were hard and they couldn't see. God, I pray for soft hearts in this room and at other campuses. I pray for my own heart, for hearts across this room and other campuses that would be soft. You would help us to hear your word and see our world as you see it. You alone are wise on this issue. We are not. For any of us who think we have this issue figured out, we pray that you would strike down our pride today because we don't have it figured out. None of us does. But you do. So we, we need to hear from you. And we want to act, God, I pray that this would not just be a sermon, that you would use us, that you would use this church to show your justice in the world around us. So pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. This is the word of God. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Verse 24 was a passage Martin Luther King quoted repeatedly in the civil rights movement. And the meaning of it, it's clear. It doesn't really require much explanation. The people of Israel were worshiping God. All three of their primary worship offerings are mentioned here. The burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering. They were worshiping with loud songs and music. But God says, listen to the language. He says, I hate your offerings. I despise them. I take no delight in them. I will not accept them or look upon them. Take them away from me. I will not listen to your songs. Why was that the case? Why was God rejecting their worship? And the answer in verse 24 is clear. Because they were not working for justice and righteousness around them. God's people were quick to bring their offerings, raise their hands, sing their songs and worship to God above them. Yet they were content to ignore injustice around them. And God says, I hate it. I don't even want to hear it. So if you're taking notes, here's the one truth that Amos 5, 21 through 24 makes clear. If we are going to truly worship God above us, then we must sacrificially work for justice around us. If we are going to truly worship God above us, then we must work sacrificially for justice around us. One commentator said justice here would mean fairness for the less fortunate, dignity and compassion for the needy. Righteousness would include attributes of mercy and generosity and honest dealings that imitate the character of God. And the picture's clear. Israel's rejection of justice in the social order led to God's rejection of their songs. God is not honored by mouths and hands that are quick to rise in worship when those same mouths and hands are slow to speak and work against injustice. He hates worship like that. So we have to ask the question, as a worshiping community, as the church, as a people who gather together every week to sing our songs and give our offering to God, just like we've done today, have we been or are we now slow to speak and work against racial injustice? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. Now I'm going to make a general statement here, which I know is dangerous because 12,000 of you have lived 12,000 different lives with 12,000 different experiences. But on a whole, on a whole, churches in America instead of bridging the racial divide in our country, have historically widened and are currently widening the racial divide in our country. Churches in America, instead of bridging the racial divide in our country, have historically widened and are currently widening the racial divide in our country. Now, I know that's a bold statement, but I want to show you in the next few minutes that this is not a matter of opinion. This is fact. At the same time, I want to show you that that fact does not have to continue. I want to show you in the next few minutes that this can change, that the church can be a powerful, I would unequivocally say, the most powerful impetus for justice in our culture on the issue of race. If we will humble ourselves before God and one another 
and pray and work together for justice as the people of God in a way that pleases God. So if you're taking notes, I want to offer six exhortations to us as the church that I believe we need to hear. If we're going to truly worship God, Amos 5, in the time and place in which God has put us. So number one, pastorally, I want to exhort us to look at the reality of racialization. Open our eyes, look at the reality of racialization. Now, for some, that might be a strange term. You might be wondering, don't you mean racism? Are you dodging that term? Just call it what it is. And here's why I'm not using that term. I'm not trying to dodge it. The problem is a lot of people, including a lot of white people, when we hear the word racist, we think of the extreme. White supremacist marching in Charlottesville or a Klan member marching on the streets of Alabama in 1960. And we think, I'm not a white supremacist, so I'm not a racist. In fact, many white people think that very few people are racist. We can even start to believe that racism is not much of a problem today. It's just the extremes. Individually, we don't think we have any prejudice against someone because of their ethnicity. We think, even say, that we're colorblind, that it doesn't matter to us if someone is black or white, when the reality is it does matter in our culture today whether someone is black or white. Let me pause to offer a couple caveats here. So one, we're thinking right now specifically about the historic and current white-black divide in the United States. So I know that in this church, we have 106 different nations, 106 different ethnicities who face hundreds of challenges unique to them in American culture. And I in no way as a church want us to ignore those challenges. Mike Kelsey, one of our campus pastors, addressed some of those multi-ethnic dynamics more generally in a sermon not long ago. But today, so on Martin Luther King weekend, we're specifically thinking about the challenges of the white-black divide in our culture, knowing some of those challenges overlap with all sorts of ethnicities. The other caveat deals with the terms race and ethnicity. So I would prefer to talk only in terms of ethnicity, not race, based upon the Bible. When you look at the Bible, from the beginning, there's only one race of people. If you ask the question, what race were Adam and Eve, what's the answer going to be? The human race, right? Now, at that point, we might wonder, well, what color was their skin? As if that mattered at all. It doesn't matter. Just why the Bible doesn't tell us what color their skin was. Now, in most picture Bibles in the West, we painted a portrait of a white Adam and Eve, but we have no basis for that assumption. For all we know, they could have been any color or different colors. If anything, genetics points to the greater probability they had darker skin, which is the dominant gene in skin color. The point is, God's word never equates membership in the human race with skin tone. Whatever color Adam and Eve and their children were, they contained in them a DNA designed by God that would eventually develop into a multicolored family across a multicultural world. And in this way, God's word teaches us that regardless of the color of our skin, we all have the same roots. We're all part of the same race, which is why I don't like using the term race because it actually undercuts our unity before God. Any sense of racial hierarchy or inequality, including that which has marked our country's history based on skin color, any concept of racism goes directly against God's design and it's sinful to the core. And regardless of what's been said or not said this week, we know the Bible beckons all of us to speak with crystal clear clarity on the equality and dignity of all people from any country. So this is why I'd rather use the term ethnicity because the Bible uses that term in good ways. But in this sinful world, we differentiate unbiblically according to race, specifically skin color. So for now, I want to to encourage us to look at 
see the reality of racialization. So I'm using that term to refer to a society in which race, and specifically black or white skin color, profoundly affects people's economic, political, and social experiences. So a society in which race is significant enough to be regularly acknowledged and mentioned just on a simple, practical level. Why is it that I would say that Arthur Price is an African-American pastor in Birmingham rather than just saying he's a pastor in Birmingham? I never talk about John MacArthur as a Caucasian-American pastor. He's just a pastor. So we're not talking about blunt prejudice here. That's why I'm not using the term racism because we look back in American history and some, maybe many people, might wonder, aren't we past this? And yes, slavery was wrong, but slavery is gone and has been for decades. But the reality is we could have said that in 1955. But we all know that racism was still alive and well, right? Likewise, we could say today, okay, but everybody uses the same water fountains now and we can all sit on the same bus wherever we want, which is true. And we need to pause and praise God that those things have changed. And praise God for people in this church right now, black, white, and otherwise, who have worked in different ways to change these realities in our country over the last 50 years. Praise God, those are not realities anymore. But just because those realities are no longer true doesn't mean racialization is gone. So let me paint a picture of our country with an admittedly broad stroke. So I'm not talking about any specific city or community like D.C. or anyone you may live in. But the reality is the facts are black Americans are much more likely to be unemployed than white Americans. The current ratio of two unemployed black people for every one unemployed white person has held pretty much constant since 1950. When you measure household wealth, on average, the median net worth of black people is 8% percent that of white people, 8%. Once you take out any equity accrued in a home or vehicle, the median net financial assets of black people are 0% those of white people. African-American babies die at a rate over twice the frequency of white babies. African-American mothers are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white American mothers. Young African-American males are six times more likely to be murdered than are young white American males. We've all heard the black-white disparities in the criminal justice system that have been highlighted over recent years. You put it all together, you look at every study there is, and you will see that white Americans are far more likely than black Americans to get a quality education, to have a high-paying job, and to live in a more affluent neighborhood with less crime. Now, obviously I need to stop here and make two key caveats. One, I mentioned this is a broad stroke. The last thing I am trying to do is equate black with poor or uneducated. I trust we all know that is not the case. One of my concerns with even talking about this disparity is that it might create some artificial sense of pity for African Americans that actually contributes more to racialization. My point in mentioning this is just to make clear that race, specifically white or black skin color, affects one's life in our country. And the other caveat is, I'm not even saying why that disparity exists. We have all kinds of ideas about why it exists. We'll get to that in a minute. For now, I'm just pointing out a disparity exists. We can't deny this. These are not opinions. They are facts. It matters in our country whether or not someone is white or black. And we don't want it to matter. I I don't think, which is why think we try to convince ourselves it doesn't matter. We think to ourselves, I I don't hold prejudice toward black or white people, so racism is not my problem. But this is where we need to see that racialization is our problem. 
It's all of our problem, and we suddenly, almost unknowingly, contribute to it. I was thinking about it this week. I haven't thought about this in decades, but I remember around the time I was in middle school when one of our neighbors put their house up for sale, and a black family bought it. And the word got around that housing values were going to go down as a result, and people started moving. It mattered when a family with black skin moved into my neighborhood. And we might like to think we're past this today, but residential segregation studies continually show, now again, this is on a national scale, so this may or not, may not be true for your neighborhood, but residential, resi residential segregation studies continually show that the degree of residential segregation between black people and non-black people is far greater now than between any other two racial groups in the United States. And it's not just in the South. In fact, the farther you get outside the South, the greater percentage you have of African-Americans in an area, the greater the level of segregation. And that leads to one more facet of racialization we need to realize before we move on. And this is massive. I believe we in the church want racialization to change. In our hearts as followers of Christ, we want to see an end to racial division and disparity. But despite the best intentions of our hearts, reality is the church today is one of the most segregated institutions in our culture. Over 95% of white Americans attend predominantly white churches. Over 90% of African Americans attend predominantly black churches. And we know that didn't happen just accidentally or overnight. It's been the case ever since slavery and the discrimination white churches showed toward black Christians even after the Civil War. And ever since then, so get this, ever since then, churches in our culture have not only not bridged the racial divide in our country, churches are right now every single week reinforcing that divide. Could it be that as much as we'd like to think that church is a force for countering racialization, right now we are actually a force for continuing it? And in this way, I just wonder if instead of looking out there for all the reasons behind racialization in our society, we actually need to pause and at least start by looking in here. Brothers and sisters, we need to look at the reality of racialization. We cannot turn a blind eye to this reality in the culture around us or in the church among us. Maybe you debate this story or that statistic, but in the end, we cannot be comfortable as the church with that clear white-black divide that leads to all sorts of inequality in our country. It is not just and it is not right, and we will not be found to be worshiping God if we are ignoring injustice or, much worse, increasing it. So what do we do? Second exhortation. I want to be clear. I don't presume there are easy answers here. I've just been praying, God, how does your word beckon us to act? And so I just want to bring God's word to bear on what God's calling us to do. So second exhortation, look at the reality of racialization. Then second, live in true multi-ethnic community. Live in true multi-ethnic community. So biblically here, think Ephesians chapter two. In the first century, there was a massive cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. You didn't eat with each other, associate with each other. You called each other dogs. You had different traditions, different customs, different lifestyles. But what happened? 
Jews started following Jesus and so did Gentiles, which was a problem for many Jews. You read the book of Acts and it was a controversy when Gentiles wanted to be baptized and Gentiles wanted to be part of the church. It was scandalous when they started eating at the same tables and worshiping in the same rooms. And Paul writes Ephesians in part to say, this is right. You are one now. You are no longer divided. Ephesians chapter two, verse 14, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He says the same thing, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That verse is not denying ethnic or gender distinctions. It's saying that over and above those real distinctions, together we are one in Christ. The gospel of Jesus has unique power to bring different people together. And it makes sense, right? Ultimately, division among people over race or anything else goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, when man and woman sinned against God, separating themselves not only from God, but from each other. And ever since that day, it is sin that has stood at the root of all racial pride and prejudice. But when Jesus went to the cross, he conquered sin. And he made the way for people to be forgiven and free from it, restored to God, and in the process, reconciled to one another. That's why followers of Christ, regardless of skin color, have one father as one family in one household with no dividing wall of hostility based upon ethnic diversity. Jesus makes that possible. I think about, I think about one Good Friday in Birmingham, Alabama, where I had the privilege of preaching at 16th Street Baptist Church. So 50 years before I stood in that church, it was bombed by white people killing four young black girls. The church was bombed. Outside that church on a Good Friday, Martin Luther King participated in a peaceful march. He was arrested, put in jail, where he faced harsh conditions and solitary confinement. So there I stood 50 years later, invited by the pastor of that church to preach in front of a room full of black and white Christians. And I was keenly reminded on that Good Friday that the cross is what makes that kind of community possible. The cross makes true multi-ethnic community possible. So I want to exhort us to pursue that kind of community. Just like Jews and Gentiles in the first century could have chosen to stay separate from one another, to live and eat and worship separate from one another, we could do that. But I want to exhort us not to do that. By God's grace, this church is an anomaly. Having 106 different nations represented here, I praise God for the grace he's given in an increasingly multi-ethnic staff. Specifically, half of our campus pastors are African-American. For the number of churches we're partnering with and are planting, pastored by African-Americans. And I just want to exhort us, may this only be the tip of the iceberg, the beginning of ever-increasing multi-ethnic community among us. True multi-ethnic community. Not just sitting to next to one another in a worship service, but sharing life together. I listened to those sermons Mike preached when he mentioned how the most segregated place in America may not be the church, but the dinner table. So may, not that, may that not be true in any one of our lives. Let's live in true multi-ethnic community. And as a part of that, so here's what's critical. So I can't stress how critical this is because most Christian solutions, or at least many white Christian solutions to racism or racialization stop right here. Basically with the exhortation to get to know somebody of another race or ethnicity, as if that alone will solve the problem of racialization. 
But we have to realize that the problem of racialization is far deeper than individual relationships. So this is where I would offer this third exhortation. In the context of true multi-ethnic community, I want to exhort us to listen to and learn from one another. Listen to and learn from one another, specifically from others who don't look like you and who may not think like you. Think James chapter one, right before James addresses prejudice and favoritism and partiality in the church, he writes, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1.19. That is a good word for all of us when it comes to racialization. Because this issue is so emotionally charged, it's tense, like we're so prone to think differently about it, and we really need to listen to and learn from one another. So as I was preparing for this week, I came across research on people's opinions of why there is such inequality when it comes to race in our country. And so this is where I want to use the screen up here. So basically, researchers gave people different options, different options as contributing factors to racialization. So basically they pointed out the disparities that we've talked about between white and black people when it comes to jobs, income, housing. And then they asked, so why do these disparities exist? And basically, respondents could answer along this spectrum. So one on the left side of the screen here, they could say that disparities were due primarily to a lack of individual responsibility, basically a lack of personal motivation among individual people to work hard and climb out of poverty. Second, they could say disparities are due primarily to unequal education, lack of access to quality education. Or three, so on the right side of the screen here, they could say that racialization was due primarily to unjust systems and discrimination in society. So the, the researchers questioned white people and black people, and then they asked if they were professing Christians. And here's what they found. They found that white non-Christians, so white non-Christians explained racialization more according to, make a mark here, this side of the spectrum. So more White non-Christians were prone to answer that racial inequality is due to individual factors, some lack of education, less unjust systems, and structural discrimination. On the other hand, more black non-Christians were prone to answer that racial inequality is due to unjust discriminating structures and systems, including education. So on the right side of the scale here. So that's where white and black non-Christians were. Here's what's so interesting though. Among professing Christians, here's what the researchers found. White professing Christians were even farther on the left side of the scale. They were even more prone to explain racial disparity due to a lack of individual responsibility and personal motivation to work to get out of poverty. And black professing Christians were even farther on the right side of the scale. They were more prone to explain racial inequality due to discrimination in American systems and structures. Now, now here's the point. I'm obviously not saying that all white people believe this and all black people believe that. I'm not even saying this is the perfect way to ask these questions. I didn't come up with the research. Here's what I took away from it, though. What was so eye-opening for me when I saw this was to realize that basically 
the more Christian you are, so to speak, the more likely you are to be divided on the issue of racialization. So the idea that if everybody was just a Christian, we wouldn't have a racialization problem isn't true. The reality is our faith, which we want to bring us together across races, at this point is actually driving us further apart. So seeing this was so humbling and so helpful. Like I started thinking about the tension that exists, not just in the culture, but in the church in light of stories in Ferguson or Falcon Heights or Baltimore. And my aim is in no way to simplify this in any way. I don't want to simplify it, but the reality is statistically more white people are prone to immediately think on the left side of the screen here and more black people are prone to think on the right side of the screen here. And that affects our thoughts on so many things. This affects the way we think about politics, economics, social systems and structures. We're oftentimes on different pages and we know this, right? Like it was obvious in the last election. Let's just be honest with each other. Somewhere around 81% of white professing Christians voted for Trump. Around 88% of black professing Christians voted for Clinton. And many black Christians couldn't fathom how so many of their white brothers and sisters in Christ would vote for Trump. And many white Christians couldn't fathom how so many of their black brothers and sisters would vote for Clinton. My aim is not to say who anybody should have voted for. Instead, my aim is just to say we oftentimes don't understand each other, which really means we need to listen to and learn from one another. None of us can think about racialization in isolation. We need to be in true multi-ethnic community where we're sitting around the table sharing life with brothers and sisters who think differently from us. And when we're at that table, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. As, as, as followers of Christ, like we, we know the Bible speaks to both sides of this, this screen, right? Without question, the Bible speaks to individual responsibility. We are responsible before God and one another for our actions. Romans 2, 6 through 10. We're responsible for working hard. Colossians 3, 23. At the same time, the same Bible requires us to work hard hard for justice, Micah 6, 8, to correct oppression, Isaiah 1, 17, to defend the rights of those in need, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. And we will miss it, church. We will miss it if we're not willing to sit at the same table with people who are different from us with our Bibles open, listening to and learning from one another. That's, that's the point. Let's listen to and learn from each other. And as we do, so fourth exhortation, let's love and lay aside our preferences for one another. Love and lay aside preferences. Love one another. Think John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, so come, come back to the screen here for a minute. And I just want to help us to see. So this picture on one hand is extremely discouraging. But I think there's another way to look at this picture. To see it as extremely encouraging. And the way it's encouraging is the opportunity it represents. Just think, think about two individuals. If you can imagine just one on each side here. So imagine a white follower of Christ on the left and a black follower of Christ on the right. They think about racialization in totally different terms. terms and it affects so much of how they view the world, economically, socially, politically, on opposite ends of the spectrum. But now picture those same two people in the same church, listening to each other, learning from each other, and loving one another in authentic Christian community. That makes no sense to the world. And that is what we want to be as a church. 
the kind of church that causes people to ask, how are those two together? It doesn't make any sense. What's the reason? We want to be a group of people from different economic positions, political persuasions, who, if we were to get into some political discussions, we'd be on opposite sides of the spectrum. But when we gather together as the church and all through the week, we're sitting right next to each other with our Bibles open because this is what unites us. The Word of God unites us. The Word made flesh, Jesus, unites us. Because here's the reality. Our politics don't, but our King does which means we must lay aside our preferences for one another. Which, all right, so think about that, preferences. So there's not just historical reasons, there's also contemporary reasons why churches split over racial ethnic lines. Part of it is because we like being around people who are like us, who sing songs that we like, do things the way we like to do them. This has been the name of the game in church growth for decades now. The way to draw a crowd in a church is just to appeal to people's preferences. It's almost like we've created a reality TV show model of church where people walk away and are prone to think, well, I'll give the sermon a six today, music four. Maybe I should switch that around. Give the sermon a four, music a six. Maybe he thinks four too high. But anyway, the whole point is, you, know, you just walk away, ah, oh, it didn't really do it for me. And thinking like this about the church has contributed. So see the effect, has contributed to division by race in the church. To the point where proponents of church growth have actually advocated what they call the homogeneous unit principle, which basically states that a church can grow the fastest if it only has one cultural group. The thing is, if you want to reach as many people as possible, and people like being around those who are most like them, then focus on trying to reach one type of person in one church and another type of person in another church. So the way to grow the church is to appeal to people's individual preferences. I don't have time to go into this one biblically today, but suffice to say, it's not in the Bible. Like you never see, Paul say to Jewish people, you guys just stick together. We can grow our church, your church a lot faster if you keep the Gentiles out. And you Gentiles start your own churches. That's the best way to go. No, they're working hard to come together. They're sacrificing personal preferences because the church is not about their preferences. It's about the display of Christ's supremacy and his glory shines most clearly when different groups of people come together and he's the only explanation for why they're together. That's what we wanna be, McLean Bible Church. That's what we want to be, but, but that's not easy. It's not easy. And I would, I would say it's particularly hard for minority brothers and sisters. So it's interesting, I'm guessing, or I guess not surprising, there's growing research that shows how most multi-ethnic churches in our country are still dominated by white cultural norms. Music style, authors, others referenced by the pastor, so on. So even in a multi-ethnic church, there can still be a sense of disparity, which leads to more sacrifice on the part of non-white people. I, th I think about African-American members of this church, Asian-American members of this church, members of all sorts of ethnicities who have set aside all sorts of preferences, musical, preaching style, or otherwise. I think about members of our staff from different ethnicities. I think about Mike and Eric, African-American campus pastors who have honestly shared with me how they frequently wrestle with investing their leadership here instead of in the church communities that raise them. There are members, pastors of this church who have made many sacrifices to be here because they're committed to multi-ethnic community. So I just want to say from my position, I, I want to sacrifice more of my preferences as a white 
pastor. I need to grow in my laying aside of preferences for members of this body because I want Christ to be exalted through increasing diversity in our leadership and our membership. On a related note, I do not want to speak from the Bible on issues that are popular among white followers of Christ while staying silent in the Bible on issues that are important to non-white followers of Christ. I know that's not faithful pastoring. But I actually read this week how studies have shown that white church leaders are less likely to speak and act prophetically on race issues because white church leaders have more to lose when they do. Basically, if you want to draw a crowd in general, you stay away from racial issues. And if you want to draw a white crowd, definitely stay away from saying white people are part of the problem on racial issues. Because the reality is, people mainly want to be comforted when they come to church. Like as people, we're just naturally drawn to that which bring the most, brings the most benefit with the least cost. So if you give people a choice between the church of comfort and the church of comfort, but you need to make sacrifices to change your life, people will choose the church of comfort most every time, which is why we've designed so much of church culture the way we have. It's why we're so prone not to talk about issues that are uncomfortable to us. And I just want to say, I don't think the Bible gives us that option. Amos 5 doesn't give us that option. We cannot truly worship God while we stay silent on injustice in all kinds of areas. And I know as a white pastor, I have blind spots. I am part of the problem. And I need friends and fellow pastors around me from different ethnicities who help me see those blind spots. And I'm committed to listening and learning and loving and laying aside whatever contemporary church growth methodology says is the best way to grow the church, i.e. ignore the issues. I want to do the exact opposite. I want us to hear God's word clearly on the issues. And we can trust God with the growth of his church. We can trust him. So love, lay aside preference. I need to move on. Two final exhortations. One, one if, if Amos 5, we're going to worship God truly, then leverage your influence for justice in the present. Leverage your influence for justice in the present. This is the exhortation, just flowing from verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What a great picture. The language here is like gushing with torrents of water that overflow and never run dry. This is what pleases God. When justice isn't trickling from God's people, but it's tumbling through dry valleys of injustice all around them. So my encouragement is, exhortation is for us, each of us, to look at our lives, to look at our families, your job, your position, the opportunities you and I have, the resources you and I possess, to look at all this and say, how can I leverage my influence for justice around me? The, the true test for us as a church is not how much applause there might be during a sermon like this, but how we live. And for me and other pastors and elders, how we lead this church to leverage, leverage our influence for justice. And instead of me trying to give a list right now of just practical ways this might play out in our lives, I was talking with some of our pastors this week, including Mike and Eric, and we're going to set up a time in the near future when we get together around the table one night, and we're just going to host a conversation with whoever wants to be a part. We'll record it if you can't be there. We just help one another flesh out some of these things practically in our lives. So be on the lookout for that in the days to come. And let me also say practically, one, one of the pastors I sent this manuscript to here in the city, the B.D. Anyabwile over in Anacostia, he responded to me and he said, please make sure to thank McLean 
for their investments in our neighborhood here in D.C. Many MBC members have volunteered and invested in organizations and efforts here to care for hurting people. He said, McLean Bible Church has a special place in my heart. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, by the ways you have leveraged your influence for justice around us. Let's do it all the more in the days to come because I trust we know the history. I trust we know, again, speaking broadly here, that in every era of American racism, white churches have been found complacent. I think specifically slavery, civil rights, there's no question that white churches as a whole, and I would include many of the pastors and theologians I frequently quote, actively commended, promoted, and defended slavery. Slavery is a stain upon that era of church history. Some might say a scar that's still healing. Then in the civil rights movement, I, I mentioned Martin Luther King being arrested in Birmingham on Good Friday. As he sat in jail, eight white Birmingham pastors criticized him for his methods, called for him to be more patient in promoting civil rights. That's when he wrote that famous letter from Birmingham jail in which he said, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. That is a stain or horror upon that era of church history not too long ago. So here we sit 50 or so years later, and I just think we need to at least ask the question, is history going to see a stain on us? That letter from Birmingham jail ended with these words. He said, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Brothers and sisters, may that not be said of us in our day. May we leverage our influence individually and together for justice in the present. Then, final exhortation, let's long for the day when justice will be perfect. So ladies and gentlemen, there's coming a day when Amos chapter 5 verse 24 will be a reality. Revelation 22 gives us a picture of heaven. With this description, the river of the water of the tree of life, river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the ethnic group, all the ethnicities of the world. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever with him. Oh, Martin Luther King 
had a dream of states sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, transformed into oases of justice and freedom. He had a dream of a day when rough places would be made plain, crooked places would be made straight, racism would be forever gone, and freedom would forever ring. And I think it's clear from all we've seen today that that dream is not yet fully realized. There is still work to do in Washington, in our country, and all over the world for that matter. But there is coming a day, mark it down, when every nation, every tribe, every tongue in the human race, every color of person who's trusted in Christ will gather around his throne, forgiven of all our sin and free to worship him in a place of perfect justice and pure righteousness. So let's live for that day. Let's pray and work for that day. Let's long for that day when the glory of God will be finally and fully revealed in the unity of his church. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As always, you can find more related resources to this sermon on the Radical website. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen, and until next time, join us there at Radical.net.